Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, a reminder that we're releasing more episodes of the series The Essential Sam Harris, created by Jay Shapiro. Jay has mined my catalog and put together episodes on specific themes, adding his own commentary read by the wonderful Megan Phelps Roper, and weaving that together with excerpts from many podcasts on a similar topic. We released Artificial Intelligence about a week ago. There will be episodes on consciousness and violence, free will, belief and unbelief, existential threat and nuclear war, social media and the information landscape, death, meditation and Eastern spirituality, and perhaps other topics beyond that. Jay has also created workbooks for each episode and recommendations for further exploration. And these full episodes and other materials are available to all podcast subscribers. As always, if you can't afford a subscription, you need only send an email to support at samharris.org and request a free account. And I remain extremely grateful to have a community of subscribers that support the podcast knowing that others who can't afford to are nevertheless able to get everything for free. That really is the business model that makes sense for me in digital media. And it's our policy over at Waking Up, too. So don't let real concerns about money ever be the reason why you don't get access to my digital work. Okay. Well, I've been off Twitter for about 10 days now. And uh, I must say, it's been interesting. It's almost like I amputated a limb. Actually, I, I amputated a phantom limb. The limb wasn't real, and it was mostly delivering signals of pain and disorder. But it was also a major presence in my life, and it was articulate in ways that I was pretty attached to. I could make gestures, or seeming gestures that I can now no longer imagine making. I mean, there's literally no space in which to make those gestures in my life now. So there's definitely a sense that something is missing. My phone is much less of a presence in my life. I've noticed that I sometimes pick it up reflexively, and then I think, what was I hoping to do with this? And my sense of what the world is, is different. A sense of where I exist in the world is different. This might sound completely crazy to those of you who are never obsessed with Twitter. But Twitter had really become my newsfeed. It was my first point of interaction with the world of information each day. And now that seems far less than optimal. I once went up in a police helicopter and experienced what it was like to have a cop's eye view of a major American city. At the time, this really was a revelation to me. When you're listening to police radio, there's always a car chase or shots fired or reports of a rape in progress or some other astounding symptom of societal dysfunction. And without a police radio in your life, most of that goes away. And it's genuinely hard to say which view of a city is more realistic. Is it more realistic a picture of your life in your city for you to suddenly be told that someone is getting murdered right now, a mere four miles from where you're currently drinking your morning cup of coffee? 
Is the feeling of horror and helplessness that wells up in you a more accurate lens through which to view the rest of your day? Or is it distorting of it? It does seem possible to misperceive one's world on the basis of actual facts because of what one helplessly does with those facts. It's almost like the human mind has its own algorithmically boosted information. So, misinformation aside, and there was obviously a lot of that, I now feel like many of the facts I was getting on Twitter were distorting my sense of what it is to live in the world, as well as my sense of my place in it. Today's conversation was recorded before I got off Twitter, so you'll hear it come up briefly. Actually, it was recorded the day before I deleted my account, because I did that on Thanksgiving Day, and this was recorded the day before. And at a few points, you'll hear the residue of how much time I had been spending on Twitter that day. I complain about it. I draw an analogy to it. And frankly, listening back to this conversation, I sound a little more cantankerous than normal. This conversation had the character of a debate at times, especially in the second half. And um, listening to it, I sound a little bit at the end of my patience. And while it had some reference to the disagreement being discussed, it was certainly drawing some energy from my collisions on Twitter that day. Anyway, today's guest is Eric Howell. Eric is a neuroscientist and writer. He was a professor at Tufts University, but recently left to write full-time. He's been a visiting scholar at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton and a Forbes 30 Under 30 notable in science. He has published a novel titled The Revelations, and he now writes full-time for his substack, which goes by the name of The Intrinsic Perspective. And today we talk about the nature of moral truth and, by implication, the future of effective altruism. We discuss the connection between consequentialism and EA, the problems of implementing academic moral philosophy, bad arguments against consequentialism, or what I deem to be bad arguments, the implications of AI for our morality, the dangers of moral certainty, whether all moral claims are in fact claims about consequences, the problem of moral fanaticism, why it's so difficult to think about low-probability events, and other topics. Anyway, I really enjoyed this, despite being slightly prickly. These are some topics that really are at the core of my interest, as well as Eric's. And now I bring you Eric Howell. I am here with Eric Howell. Eric, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Sam. It's a, it's a delight. I actually grew up selling your books. Um, um, I, I grew up in my mom's independent bookstore and uh, all through high school, which was, I think, like 2004 or so. This was right when The End of Faith came out. Uh-huh. And, um, oh, nice. and I sat on the bestseller list for a long time. And so I probably sold, I don't know, 50, maybe even 100 copies of that book. I mean, I sold it, I sold it a lot. It was really dominant during that period of time. So. Oh, nice, nice. Where, where was the bookstore? Or where is the bookstore? Uh, in, yeah, it's in Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is north of Boston. Mm-hmm. It's, just a, uh, it's just an independent bookstore up there. But it was, um, yeah, it was, it was great. It was, it, I, I highly recommend growing up in a bookstore if you can oh, yeah. get away with it. I can only imagine. I, that that would have been my dream at, uh, 
really every point from, I don't know, 12 on. That would have been amazing. <laughs> do you guys still have the store? We, we do, actually. It survived COVID incredibly, thanks to the generosity of the local community who, who leapt in to support it with a GoFundMe. And oh, it's nice. now going on 50 years, Amazing. which is pretty incredible. Well, let's plug yeah. the store. What's the name of the store? Uh, the name of the store is, is Jabberwocky Books in Newburyport, Massachusetts. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, Jabberwocky as in uh, Lewis Carroll? Yep. Cool. Well, that's great. I, uh, I love that story. So uh, you and I have um, a ton in common, apparently. We've never met. This is the first time we've spoken. I have been reading your essays and uh, at least one of your academic papers. Let's just um, summarize your background. What, what have you been doing since, uh, since you left that independent bookstore? Well, I originally wanted to be a, a writer, but I became very interested in, in college about the science of consciousness, which I'm sure you sort of understand uh, in the sense of it just being very innately interesting. It seemed like a wild west. It seemed like there was a lot there that was unexplored. And so I became so interested that I went into it and I got a PhD and I worked on developing what's probably ar arguably the one of the leading theories of consciousness, which is integrated information theory. Mm. Now, I, I think that particular theory has has some particular problems, but I think it's it's sort of what a theory of consciousness should look like. And I was very lucky to sort of work on it and develop it over my PhD. But during that time, I was still writing. And so eventually, I, that spilled over onto Substack and, and doing sort of these, these newsletters, which is almost, to me, like this emerging literary genre. Maybe that sounds a bit pretentious, but I, I really sort of think of it that way. Um, this sort of frictionless form of communication that I really find intriguing. Um, and so that's what I've been devoting a lot of my effort to, effort to lately. Yeah, yeah. So just to back up a second, so you got your PhD in neuroscience, and um, did you do that under Tononi? Yeah, I did. So I worked, I worked with Giulio Tononi, and we were working on, this was right around the time when integrated information theory was sort of coming together. It, you know, he, he's the originator of it, but there was sort of this early theory team, we called ourselves, that was all built on shoring up the foundations. And it was a deeply formative, again, a, an instance of me just being very, very lucky. Mm -hmm. It was a deeply formative experience to work on a really ambitious intellectual project, even though now I can sort of see that, like, frankly, I, I don't think that the theory is, is, is probably 100% true. I think maybe some aspects of it are true. I think some aspects of it are incredibly interesting. I think it sort of looks very much like what we want out of a science of consciousness. But regardless of that, I think as an intellectual project, it was incredibly ambitious and intricate. And it had just a huge, it, it, to go into that environment of really high level science at a frontier when you're 22 is is mm. mind expanding. Yeah. Right. I mean it, it was just it was just absolutely mind blowing and it was a privilege to be to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well there's so many things we could talk about. Obviously we can talk about consciousness and free will, the the brain, uh, AI. I know we share some concerns there. Digital media, we, the you just raised the point of your migration to Substack. I mean maybe we'll linger on that for a second, but there's there's just we we could talk about uh, we have we have many many hours of uh, ahead of us if we want to cover all those things. But there's something else on the agenda here, which is more pressing, which is the your views about 
effective altruism and consequentialism, which um, have been only further crystallized in recent weeks by the um, the fall of Sam Bankman-Fried. So I think maybe we'll get to some of the other stuff, but um, we definitely want to talk about moral truth and the larger question of just what it takes to live a good life, which you know really are yeah, those are questions which. I think are central to everyone's concern, whether they think about them explicitly or not. Mm-hmm. But before we jump in, let's just, just linger for a second on your bio, because you, you made this jump to Substack, which really appears in, at least in the last, what, 10 days or so, to have actually been a jump. You, you, have, you were a professor of neuroscience at Tufts, was that correct? Yeah, so I'm, I'm resigning my professorship at at Tufts in order to to write full time on my Substack, the Intrinsic Perspective, yeah. and one of the re- one of the reasons I'm doing it is just that you know it the 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 medium itself offers uh, a hu- a huge amount to people who are interested in in multiple subjects, right? I mean, you you surely have sort of felt some of these constraints wherein you know you're really expected to be hyper focused on particular academic problems and. You know, I do do like technical work and so on, but I'm also sort of just more interested in general concepts. And there hasn't been, mm. you know, at least for someone who's who's a writer, there hasn't been a great way to to make a living off of that. And actually, Substack is now sort of providing that. So I think I can I can do stuff that's as in depth as some of my academic work, but sort of do it do it in public and create conversations. And I think that that's that's really important. And I should seize the opportunity while I can. Mm. So, but why resign your post at Tufts? What's the? I mean, what what do most people not understand about academia at this moment that um, would make that seem like a an obvious choice? Because I guess from the outside, it, it might seem somewhat inscrutable. I mean, why not maintain your professorship, continue to be a part of the ivory tower, but then write on Substack as much as you want or or can? Yeah, I. I think what is is not quite understood is how focused you have to be on the particular goalposts that are within academia that move you towards tenure track. So basically what what every professor wants is this this tenure at some major institution and to do that now it's not really just a matter of doing your research. Right, it's a matter of sort of crafting your research so it will receive big governmental grants. And the areas in which I work, which is like science of consciousness, formal mathematically formalizing the notion of emergence, these are not areas where there is a huge amount of of funding to begin with, right? But but beyond that, it also means being, you know, involved with the student body in not just having students, but in all sorts of ways like extracurricular activities, volunteering, taking on you know, essentially busy work of editing journals, and it involves you sort of citation maxing and paper maxing, and uh, sitting on all the right committees, and and I sort of have tr- tried to avoid doing that, and mm. thought maybe I could make a career within academia without really leaning in heavily into all that, in, into sort of the all the goalposts and hoops of academia, and I think it's it's effectively just impossible. Like I've I've sort of been very lucky to have gotten as as far as I have, and the simple truth is is that 
like you know, last year I, I, I published a novel and I've been publishing essays on Substack. And the simple truth mm. is, is that a tenure committee will never sit down and say, oh, you, you wrote a novel and a, a bunch of popular essays. That's you know, just this massive plus for our biology department. It, it, it's like totally inscrutable to them. And um, I've never had anyone in any sort of administrative or hiring or grant giving capacity show anything but like hesitation and, and trepidation about, about sort of my, my, my work outside of either direct academic stuff or direct research stuff. Mm. Yeah. But has something changed or has that always been the case, do you think? I think it's, it's essentially always been the case. It's just that, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, my, my fear is that people think, oh, you know, this is someone hopping on Substack as some sort of life raft. I, I think if Substack didn't exist, I would sort of happily split the difference and just take the career hit and keep writing and, and, and probably, you know, not get tenure where I want to get tenure or even if I could, but I would still try it. But I think Substack as, a, as this sort of emerging genre, like you, you know, you're, you're an author, you've written books, and there's a certain sensation, at least that, that I have, and I imagine most authors have at a certain point. Where when you're publishing a book, it's like you're entering this queue behind a line of like massive titans who've all written incredible works, and you're sort of offering up, you know, this sort of meager. Here's my book. I, I hope it sort of at all lives up to any of this stuff. Mm. And um, and I just don't feel that way. And I I just don't feel that way on Substack, right? Yeah. I feel like oh, this is this is new. People haven't really done this. I mean, of course, there's been many great essayists throughout history, but this sort of constant contact of, of the, the newsletter form and the frictionlessness of it, it strikes me as like a new, a new genre and I want to sort of explore it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the huge difference is the, the cadence of publishing. I mean, to, to be able to hit publish on your own schedule and then to see it instantaneously land in the hands and minds of readers or listeners in the case of a podcast that strikes me as genuinely new. I mean, you know, the, the rhythm of book publishing now, I mean, it's been some years since I've been engaged in it, and it's really hard, for, especially for a nonfiction book. I, mean, I guess with a novel, it would probably feel differently, or this wouldn't be quite the pain point. But if you have an argument to make that you think has pressing intellectual and even social importance, and it, it all relates to issues of the day, to spend a year uh, or more crafting that argument and then to wait nearly a year. I mean, in, in the usual case, it's something like 11 months for that to be published. I mean, it's just, it just seems like a bizarre anachronism at this point. And, and so as a counterpoint to that, Substack and podcasts and blogs generally, uh, you know, anything digital that you have that you, for which you're the publisher, uh, it's just a different world. Yeah, absolutely. Publishing moves at a at a at a glacial speed. And it's funny as well just as someone who grew up as I said selling books. I mean, there are a lot of people who have moved to reading primarily on their phone and what I don't want is 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 reading to to sort of die out. Right? Mm -hmm. Like I I want read I I want to have high level, you know, book level content that that people can read on their phones. And, and one reason for that is just that when you wake up in the morning, what a lot of people do is, is check their phones and they'll look through their social media messages and they'll read their emails, but they'll also read an essay. They'll, they'll read an essay with their head right on their pillow 
Mm. And that is so powerful if you can sort of direct that towards things worth attending to. And I realized this by looking at my own behavior. Like I, as much as I love books, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in my office surrounded by, you know, books, uh, free books stolen from my mother's right, bookstore. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, as much as I absolutely love books, I don't wake up in the morning and, and put a book in my face, right? <laughs> I wake up in the yeah. morning and, and I check my phone, right? And, and so I realized this and I, and I thought, well, what am I doing? Right, like, why? Why am I putting all this effort into something that? Yeah, I still, I still read books, but clearly there's this huge open market for um, sort of good, high-level content that you can that you can read online or on your computer. And I want to bring a lot of the old-school sort of literary and and scientific qualities. I mean, that's my hope, right? Is to bring that sort of stuff online. But anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you're executing on that hope. Because your Substack essays are great and they're quite uh, literate, and you also have a great artist you're collaborating with. I love the illustrations associated with your essays. Yeah, it's a huge amount of fun. It's he he does these artistic reactions to the post, so he reads draft and then somehow knocks out, you know, with no direction from me, his sort mm. of reaction to it, and it's it's just a, it's it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Nice. Well, so let's jump into the the topic at hand because this was kicked off by my having noticed one of your essays on effective altruism, and then then um, I think I signed up for your Substack at that point, and then I noticed, or maybe I was already on it, and then you uh, wrote a further essay about Sam Bankman-Fried and uh, his misadventures. So we're going to jump into effective altruism and consequentialism, and there are now many discontents. Perhaps we should define and differentiate those terms first. How, how do you think about EA and consequentialism? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, effective altruism has been a really interesting intellectual movement you know, in my lifetime. It's, it's sort of made contributing to charity intellectually sexy, which I find very admirable. Mm. And they've brought a lot of attention to causes that are more esoteric. But just to give like a very, a very basic definition maybe of effective altruism and how I think about it, is that you can view it at two levels. So the broadest sort of definition is something like Moneyball, but for charities. Mm-hmm. So it's looking at charities and saying, how can we make our donations to these charities as effective as possible? And, and again, this is something that immediately people say, that sounds really great. But there's also, you know, it comes out of a particular type of moral philosophy. So the movement has its origins in a lot of these intellectual thought experiments that are based around utilitarianism. And you know, where I've sort of criticized the movement is in its sort of taking those sort of thought experiments at too seriously. And actually, back in August, I I wrote, I think, the essay that you're referring to. And it's not just because I've decided to, you know, critique randomly effective altruism, which at the time was just people, you know, contributing money to charity, like what's there exactly to, to critique about it. But they actually put out a call for criticism. So he said, please, mm. we'll pay you to, to criticize us. Again, something that's, that is very admirable. And so you know, I ended up writing a couple essays in response to this, this call for self-criticism. And my worry was that they were taking the, maybe the consequentialism, you could call it, you could call it utilitarianism, a bit too seriously. 
And my worry was that they would kind of scale that up. And in a sense, the FTX implosion that recently occurred, which now over a million people, it seems like, have lost money in, that that occurred perhaps, arguably, this is arguably, in part because of taking some of the deep core philosophical motives of effective altruism too seriously and trying to bring it too much into the real world. And, and just to give like a definition, maybe we should give some definitions here, because I've said utilitarianism, I've said consequentialism. So, so yeah. you know, very broadly, I would say consequentialism is when your theory of morality is based around the consequences of actions, or to be strict about it, that morality is reducible in some way to only the consequences of actions. And utilitarianism is maybe like a specific form of consequentialism. People use these terms in a little bit different ways, but yeah. utilitarianism is kind of, kind of a specific form of consequentialism where it's it's saying that the consequences that impact, let's just be reductive and say the happiness or pleasure of individuals is sort of all that matters for morality. And all of effective altruism originally comes from some moral thought experiments around how to sort of maximize these properties or how to be a utilitarian. And I think that that's, I, I think that that's in a sense, the, the part of the movement that we should take the least seriously. And then there's a bunch of other parts of the movement that I think are, are good and should be emphasized. So I just want to sort of make that clear. Okay, great. Well, well, let me go over that ground one more time just to fill in a few holes, because I think I just don't want anyone to be confused about what these terms mean and what we're talking about here. So yeah, it is in fact descriptively true that many effective altruists are um, consequentialists. And the, as you say, the, the, the original inspiration for EA is, uh, you know, arguably uh, the, the thought experiment that Peter Singer came up with about the shallow pond, which has been discussed many times on mm -hmm. this podcast. But briefly, if you were to w be walking home one day and you see a child drowning in a shallow pond, obviously you would go rush over and save it. And if you happen to be wearing some very expensive shoes, the thought that you, you can't wade into that pond to save the life of a drowning child because you don't want to damage your shoes, well, that, that immediately brands you as some kind of moral monster, right? Anyone who would decline yeah. to save the life of a child over, let's say, a $500 pair of shoes, you know, is just deserves to be exiled from our moral community. But as Singer pointed out, if you, you flip that around, you, all of us are in the position every day of receiving appeals from valid charities, any one of which uh, indicates that we could save the life of a, of a drowning child, in effect, uh, with a mere allocation of, let's say, $500. But none of us feel that we or anyone else around us who, who is declining to send yet another check to yet another organization for this purpose none of us feel that, that we or anyone else is a moral monster for not doing that, right? And yet, if you do the math in consequentialist terms, it seems like an analogous situation. It's just a greater remove. The, the, the moral horror of the inequality there is just less salient. And so we just, we, you know, we, we walk past the pond, in effect, every day of our lives, and we do so with a clear conscience. And so it's on the basis of that kind of thought 
that a few young philosophers were inspired to start this movement, uh, effective altruism, which uh, you know, as you say, is I like the analogy to it's essentially money ball for charity. You know, just let's just drill down on what is truly effective and how can we do the most good with the, the limited resources we have. And then there are f- further arguments about long-termism and, and other things that get layered in there. And I should say that Peter Singer and the founders of EA, Toby Ord and Will McCaskill, have been on this podcast, and you know, in some cases, multiple times. And um, there's a lot that you, know, that you know I've said about all that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess I would make a couple of points here. One is that there's no, I guess, a, a further definition here. You brought in the term utilitarianism, so that, that's the sort of the, the original form of consequentialism attributed to. Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, which, when it gets discussed in most circles, more or less gets equated with some form of hedonism, right? But people tend to think, well, this, utilitarians really just care about pleasure or happiness in some kind of superficial and impossible to measure way. And so there's, there, are, there are many caricatures of the view that, like, you should you should avoid pain at all costs. There's no, you know, there's no form of pain that could ever be justified on a utilitarian calculus. So there's a, there's a lot of confusion about that, but I, I guess the, you know, to, if, you, if we wanted to keep these terms separate, I, I just tend to collapse everything to consequentialism. Y- you could argue that consequentialism, as you said, is the claim that moral truth, which is to say, you know, questions of right and wrong and good and evil, is totally reducible to talk about consequences, you know, actual or perhaps actual and potential consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would certainly sign on to that. You could make the further claim, which I've also made, is that all of the consequences that really matter in the end have to matter to some conscious mind somewhere, at least potentially, right? So that we, we care about the, in the end, the, the conscious states of conscious creatures and you know anything else we say we care about can collapse down to the actual or potential conscious states of conscious creatures. So I, I, I would, I've argued for that in, in my book, The Moral Landscape and, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But me- much of the confusion that comes here is, you know, as I, I think we're going to explore, comes down to an inadequate picture of just what counts as a consequence. Mm-hmm. So I want to get into that. But the, I guess the, the final point to make here just definitionally is that it seems to me that there's no direct connection or at least not, there's no two-way connection, maybe there's a one-way connection between effective altruism and consequentialism, so, which is to say, I think you could be an effective altruist and not be a consequentialist, though, though I, would, I would agree that probably most effective altruists are consequentialists. I mean, you could be a fundamentalist Christian who just wants to get the, the, the souls of people into heaven Mm-hmm. And then think about effective altruism in those terms. Just how can I, you know, how can I be most effective at accomplishing this particular good that I'm defining in this particular way? And you know, so I, I do think EA and consequentialism break apart there. Although I guess you could say that if that any consequentialist really should be an effective altruist, if you're concerned about consequences, well, then you should be concerned about really tracking what the consequences of your actions or, or a charity's actions are. And you should care if one charity is doing a hundred times more good, you know, based on your definition of good than another charity. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the charity that should get your, your money and, and time, etc. So I don't know, if do you have anything you want yeah. to modify so, about all that? 
No, no, I, th- I think that that's correct. And I, and I agree, actually, that you could sort of separate out the utilitarianism or consequentialism from effective altruism in, in some particular ways. But I think that where it gets a little bit difficult is that the whole sort of point is this effective part of the altruism. So when one makes a judgment about effectiveness, they have to be choosing something to maximize or prioritize. So you want to be choosing the biggest bang, the biggest moral bang for your buck, Mm. which again, strikes me as quite admirable, especially when the comparisons that you're making are local. So let's say that you set out with your goal of saving lives in Africa. Well, maybe there are multiple different charities and some are just orders of magnitude in terms of the expected results of just raw number of lives saved. And this is actually a big part of precisely what the effective altruism movement has done. It's isolated some of these charities. You know, there's a couple of them, some are around like uh, mosquito bed nets and things like that, that are just really, really effective at saving lives. But what if you're comparing things that are very far apart? So let's say that you have some money and you want to distribute it between, you know, inner city arts education versus domestic violence shelters. Well, now it gets it gets a lot harder and it becomes a little bit clearer that what we mean by morality isn't as obviously measurable as something like an effective economic intervention or an effective medical intervention. Maybe it is to some hypothetical being with like a really perfect good theory of morality. And one way to that, you know, effective altruists essentially get around some of these issues is just to say, well, actually, both of those are essentially wastes of money. Like you you shouldn't really be contributing Mm. to inner city arts education or domestic violence shelters. You really should be arbitraging your money because your money is going to go so much further somewhere else. And again, this all sounds good. Like I, I um, I don't think that this is bad reasoning or anything like that. But the issue is, is that the more seriously you take this and the more literally you take this, what happens is, is that it's almost like you begin to instantiate this academic moral philosophy into real life. And then it, it begins to become vicious in a particular way. Like, why are you donating any money within the United States at all? Yeah. Why not put it where it goes much further? And that's where people begin to get off the bus to a certain degree, right? Like, again, no one can blame anyone for maximizing charities. But to say that, okay, wait a minute, a dollar will go so much further in Africa than it will here. So why donate any money to any charity that sort of operates within the US? And that's where, again, people begin to say, wait, 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 some, something is going on here. And I think what's going on is that this maximizing, totalitizing philosophy within that you can have this hardcore interpretation of utilitarianism or consequentialism, and you can take it really, really seriously. And if you do, I think it can lead to some bad effects, just like the way that people who take religious beliefs, and I don't want to make the comparison, I'm certainly not saying that effective altruism is a religion, but in sort of the same behavioral way that Mm. people who take religious beliefs really, really seriously, and they have some sort of access to moral truth, and that allows them to strap a bomb to their chest or something. 
And that is uh, this level of sort of fanaticism. And I think that if you take academic philosophy too seriously, you should sort of take it as interesting and maybe as motivating, but you shouldn't really go and try to perfectly instantiate it in the world. You should be very wary about that. And that's what this sort of arbitrage leads is, right? It's this like taking it really, really seriously. Mm. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great place to start. I mean, this, this really is the core of the issue. And, and uh, so I'm going to make a couple of claims here, which I think are true and foundational. And I, I would love to get your reaction. But before I do that, I just uh, want to acknowledge that the issues you, you just raised are, are, are issues that I've been thinking about and talking about, you know, all the while defending consequentialism. This, this is really the, the fascinating point at which our reasoning about what it means to live a good life and the the practical uh, implementation of that reasoning is um, it's just very difficult to work out in practice. And I mean, so the first thing I would want to claim here is that consequentialism is a theory of moral truth, right? It's a claim about what it may, what it means to say that it, that something is morally true, that something is really good or really bad. Mm-hmm. It's a claim about value and in the end, it's a claim about what it's possible and, and legitimate to care about, but it isn't a decision procedure, right? It's not a way of doing the math that you just indicated may be impossible to do. Um, and there's, there's a distinction I made in the moral landscape between uh, answers in practice and answers in principle. And I, you know, it just should be obvious that there are, there are a wide variety of questions where we know there are answers in principle. We know that it's possible to be right or wrong about you know any given claim in this area uh, and to what's more to maybe not even know that you're wrong when you in fact you are wrong and yet there may be no way of deciding who is right and who is wrong there and or, or ever getting the data in hand that could adjudicate a dispute and so the, the example I always go to because it's both uh, vivid and and obviously true for people is that the question of you know, how many birds are in flight over the surface of the earth right now has an answer, right? It, it has a, you, at one, you just think about it for a second and you know it has an answer. And that answer is, in fact, an integer. And yet we know we'll never get the data in hand. We could not possibly get the data in hand. And yet and the data have changed by the time I get to the end of the sentence. So there is a right answer there. And yet we know no one knows it. But it would be ridiculous to have a philosophy where a claim about you know birds and flight would rule out the possibility of there being an answer to a question of you know how many are flying over the surface of the earth simply because we can't we don't know how to measure it right and and the, and the first thing many people say about you know any consequentialist claim about moral truth with you know with respect to to well-being say the the well-being of conscious creatures which is the formulation i often use the first thing someone will say is, "Well, I, we don't ha- we don't have any way of m- measuring well-being." Well, that's not actually an argument, right? I mean, it's more, certainly it may, it may be the beginning of one, but it it in principle it has no force, and as you can see by analogy with with birds. But further, I would make the claim that any claim that consequentialism is bad, right? That that ha- that it has repugnant implications is ultimately a claim about unwanted consequences. And usually it's, a, it's an unacknowledged claim about consequences. Mm-hmm. And so in my view, and, and you just, you 
inevitably did it in, in just stating the case against taking academic philosophy too seriously. You pointed to all of the, the terrible effects of doing this, right? The, the life negative effects, the fact that now you have to feel guilty going to the symphony because it's such a profligate wastage of money and moral resources uh, when you could be saving yet further starving children in Africa. And so we, we, we recognize we don't want to live in that sort of world, right? We love art and we love beauty and we love leisure and we're right to love those things. And we want to build a civilization that, wherein there's such abundance that most people most of the time have the free attention not to just think about genocide and starvation, but to think about the beautiful things in life and to, and to live creative lives, right? And, and to have fun, right? And so if you're going to take the thought experiments of Peter Singer so seriously that you can no longer have fun, that you can no longer play a game of Frisbee because that hour spent in the park with your children is objectively a waste of time when held against the starvation and, and immiseration of countless strangers in a distant country who you could be helping at right this very moment. Well, we all recognize that that is a, some kind of race to the bottom that is perverse, that is not, it's not giving us the emotional and cognitive resources to build a world worth living in, the, the very world that the people who are starving in Africa would want to be restored to if we could only solve their problems too. And so it may in fact be true that when, you know, when brought into juxtaposition, right, if you put the starving child at my doorstep, well then, all right, we can no longer play Frisbee, right? So there's a local difference. And that is something that is very difficult to think about in this context. And we, you know, we'll get into that. But I'm, you know, the, the claim I want to make here is that it's not a matter of, as I think you said in one of your essays, it's not a matter of us just adding some non-consequentialist epicycles into our moral framework. It really is, in the end, getting clearer and clearer about what all the consequences are and what all the possible consequences are of any given rule or action. And um, yeah. yeah, so anyway, that, I mean, I'll stop there. But that's, that's the, those are the kind of the foundational claims I would want to make here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the danger that I see is not so much someone saying, let's maximize well-being, <laughs> right? It, it's more so that someone says, let's maximize well-being. And I have a really specific definition of well-being that I can give you right now. Mm -hmm. And what ends up often happening is that you can very quickly find, because it's all about maximization, you can find these edge cases. And in a sense, moral philosophy operates like this game wherein you're trying to find examples that you know, disagree with people's moral intuitions. And, and an, an example that people often give right, would be something like this serial killer surgeon mm -hmm. who has five patients on the operating table, and he can go out into the streets, grab someone off the streets, butcher them in an alleyway, take their organs, and save five people. So it's one for five. And the difficulty is in sort of specifying something, like a, a definition specific enough that you don't want to do that. Most people sort of get off the bus with that sort of example. And that aspect of utilitarianism is very difficult to do away with. You can sort of say, that maybe there are 
long-term effects, right? So, so what people will often say with this example would be, well, wait, if the serial killer surgeon got caught, if, if we lived in a society where people were just being randomly pulled off the streets and murdered, this seems like sort of a, this would have a really high levels of anxiety on people or something mm-hmm. like that. And so the overall net well-being would, would decrease or something like that. But I think that that's very, that's very difficult to sort of defend, again, once you've chosen something very specific to maximize, like live saves or something like that. Well, so, but because that, but you that's, can just, just, that's the mistake of, of misconstruing consequences. Because I, I take this, uh, you know, this case of the rogue surgeon is, in my mind, very easy to deal with in, in consequentialist terms. And yet it's often, I mean, even in, in your essays, you put it forward as a kind of knockdown argument against consequentialism. And consequentialism all just obviously has a problem because it can't deal with this hard case. But I mean, I would just say that you can deal with it in precisely the way that people recoil from it as a defeater to consequentialism. That is a sign of what an easy case it is. I mean, we all recognize how horrible it would be to live in a world, which is to say how, how horrible the consequences are that follow from living in such a world. None of us would want to live in that world. I mean, no one wants to live in a world where they or someone they love could at any moment be randomly selected to be murdered and butchered for spare parts, right? And when, and when you would think, think of just what sort of mind you would have to have as a doctor to believe that was a, a way to maximize goodness in this world. I mean, so just imagine, mm-hmm. imagine the conscious states of, of all doctors as they surveyed their waiting rooms looking for people that they might be able to put to other use than, than merely to save their lives, right? It's just a, it perverts everything about our social relationships. And we're deeply social creatures. And states of mind like love and compassion are so valuable to us, again, because of how they directly relate to to this experience of well-being, you know, again, this is a, a suitcase term in my world, which is, it can be kind of endlessly expanded, but it doesn't, doesn't mean it's vacuous. It's just that we, the horizons of well-being are as yet undiscovered by us, but we know that it, it relates to maximizing something like love and joy and beauty and creativity and compassion and something like minimizing terror and misery and pointless suffering. Etc. And so it's just, it just seems like a very easy case when you look closely at what the likely consequences would be. And yet, there are probably local cases where the situation flips because we really are in extremis, right? I mean, if you think of a case like a, mm-hmm. like a lifeboat problem, right? Like, listen, you know, the, the, the Titanic has sunk and now you're on a lifeboat and it can only fit so many people. And yet, there are more people actually clambering on and you're all going to die if you let everyone on and so I'm sorry but this person is going to get kicked in the face until they stop trying to climb onto the lifeboat because we're no longer normal moral actors in this moment and we'll be able to justify all of this later because this really was a zero sum contest between everyone's life and the one life right those are situations which people occasionally find themselves in, and I and I, yes, they and they do function by this kind of callous consequentialist calculus, uh, and they and they're 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 uncomfortable for a reason, but they're uncomfortable for a reason because 
we get very uncomfortable mapping the, the, the ethics of extremists onto life as it is in its normal mode. Right. And mm-hmm. for good reason. Right. We just and, and there I mean, there's so much I realize now, you know, the fire hose of moral philosophy has been trained on you. But um, I mean, there's, well, there's so many edge cases that are that are, are worth considering here. But again, it never gets us out of the picture of talking intelligently and compassionately about consequences and, and possible consequences. So. So I think that there is a certain sort of game that can be played here. And this is basically the game that is played by academic moral philosophers who are debating these sorts of issues, right? And just to, to me, I think the clearest conception is to say, okay, we have, we have some sort of utilitarian calculation that we want to make for these particular, or consequentialist calculation, let's say, for these uh, particular cases. And so we have the serial killer surgeon. And we say, okay, the first term in this equation is five for one. So that seems positive, right? Mm. So it's adding this positive term. But then there are these nth order effects, right? So then you say, well, wait a minute, if we we can add in this second term, and the second term is like the terror that people feel from living in a society wherein they might be randomly butchered, right? And then the the argument is, well, when you add enough of these higher order effects, you know, into the equation, it still sort of ends up coming out negative, thus, you know, supporting our, our dislike or distrust of, the, uh, of serial killer surgeons going around. And I think what academic philosophers often do in this case is they say, okay, so you, what you've done is you've given me a game where I just have to add in more assumptions in order to make this equation positive or come up positive or negative. Mm. And the goal would be for the critic to make it come out positive so that utilitarianism recommends the serial killer surgeon and therefore sort of violates our moral intuition. And I guess what I think is that there are some ways to do that. So an example might be that you say, well, what if you are a utilitarian and you learn about a serial killer surgeon? You know, are you supposed to go report them to the police? You know, well, if you did that, it would be very bad. It would even be bad for utilitarianism itself. So you should sort of try to keep it a secret if you can. In fact, you should sort of support the act by trying to cover up as much of the evidence as possible, because now this is still technically maximizing well-being. And even if you say, well, wait a minute, there might be some further effects, it seems as if there's this sort of game of these longer-term effects. And not only that, as you add nth-order effects into this calculation, it gets more and more impossible to foresee what the actual values will be. There's this great story um, that David Foster Wallace, the writer, actually quotes at some point, which is, you know, there's this old farmer who lives in a village and, uh, you know, with his son, and one day his beloved horse escapes and everyone says, oh, bad luck. And the farmer says, who yeah. knows? And then the, the horse comes back and it is, it's somehow leading a herd of beautiful horses and everyone says, oh, great luck, who knows? Right? And then his son tries to tame one of the wild horses, breaks his leg, and uh, everyone says, oh, bad luck. And the farmer says, who knows? And then, last instance, uh, you know, the army comes in and drafts every able-bodied man to go serve in you know, this horrific, I don't know, Sino-World War I conflict where he would certainly die. But because his, his leg's broken, he's not drafted. And so the, the, far- the farmer says, you know, good luck, bad luck, you know, who, who knows? And it seems to me that there's two issues. One, as this calculation gets longer, the terms 
first of all, get, get harder and harder to foresee. And then second of all, they get larger and larger. Mm. So this is sort of like a function of almost like chaos theory, right? It's like what, you, what, what would seem very strange to me. And again, maybe it's sort of true from this perspective of like this perfect being who can sort of calculate these things out. But once you've sort of specified what you're, what you're trying to maximize and set it in our terms, you can find examples where it's like, well, should this Visigoth save this baby in the woods? Well, if it does, that leads to Hitler. If the Visigoth leaves, leaves the baby in the woods, you know, we never get Hitler, right? And that's because effects sort of expand, just like how, you know, if you go back a thousand years, pretty much everyone is, is your parent, right? <laughs> or 10,000 years or however far you go back. But like pretty much everyone living eventually becomes your parent because all the effects get mixed. And I think probably causes are sort of similar to that, where they just, they get mixed together. And so you have these massive, like expected terms, and they seem totally defined by, you know, you can always say, well, what was foreseeable and what wasn't foreseeable. And I, and I agree, like that's, you know, a, certainly a reply. But it, it just seems that when we try to make this stuff really, why I say to be wary about it is not that I think that it's automatically wrong. It's that any attempt to try to make it into something very specific and calculable, mm. to me, almost always appears to be wrong. And there are always philosophers in the literature who are pointing out, well, wait a minute, wait, you can't calculate it that way because that leads to this and you can't calculate it that way. And I think the effective altruism movement, in a sense, while many within the movement do not take it so seriously that they are trying to do exactly that, maximize something that they can sort of specifically quantify, some people do. And, and I think Sam, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was, uh, was one of them. And while I cannot personally say at all that that actually directly led to his actions, I think that given the evidence of the case, you could reasonably say that it might have contributed, that his, the takes on, on risk and this notion of maximization and having something very specific in mind that he's trying to maximize, I think very well could have led to the FTX implosion. And therefore, it's an instance of, of trying to essentially import academic moral philosophy into the real world and just crashing on the rocks of the real world. Hmm. Okay, well, just briefly on Sam Bankman-Fried, I would think that what's parsimonious to say at this point about him is that he clearly has a screw loose, or at least you know some screws loose, precisely where he should have had them turned down. You know, just in this area of moral responsibility and thinking reasonably about the effects his actions would would have or would be likely to have on the lives of other people, right? I mean, he's just not, you know, the stuff that's come out since I, I did my, my last podcast on him has been um, pretty unflattering uh, with respect to just how he was thinking about morality and consequences. But I mean, to come back to the fundamental issue here, again, consequentialism isn't a decision procedure, right? It's not a method of arriving at moral truth. It's a claim about what, is, what moral truth, in fact, is, right? I mean, what makes a proposition true? So that distinction is enormously important because, yeah, I fully agree with you that it's surprisingly difficult to believe that you understand what the consequences of anything will be ultimately. And there are many reasons for this. I mean, there's the fact that there are, there are inevitably trade-offs, right? You do one thing, by definition, you're, you at least have opportunity costs incurred by doing that thing. 
And it's impossible to assess counterfactual states of the world, right? You just don't know what mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the world line looks like where you did the opposite thing. And, um, you know, as you point out in, in one of your essays, you know, many harms and goods are not directly comparable. You put it this way in, in, in mathematical terms, you know, the set of all possible experiences is not well-ordered, right? And so it's impossible to say how many broken toes are the equivalent evil to the loss of a person's life, right? And, but it seems like, in, in consequentialist terms, you should be able to just do the math and just keep adding broken toes. And at a certain point, okay, I, it, it, would, it would be good, quote, good in moral terms to sacrifice one innocent human life to save a certain number of broken toes in this world, <laughs> right? And that, the, the, yeah, it, I mean, that just may not be the way the world is for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. But I mean, it, it seems our, our moral intuitions balk at those direct comparisons, perhaps for good reasons, perhaps for bad reasons. I mean, we're, we're living in a world where it's not crazy to think that we may ultimately change our moral intuitions and then we ha- then there has to be some place to stand where we can wonder, well, would that be a good thing to do? Good in terms of consequences, right? I mean, would, would it be good if we, if we could all take a pill that would rewrite our moral code so that we suddenly thought, oh, yeah, it's a straightforward calculation between broken toes and, and innocent human life, and, and, and here, here's the number, right? And now we all see the light. You know, we see the wisdom of thinking in, in these ways because we've actually changed our moral toolkit by changing our brains, would that be good or would that be moral brain damage at the population level? That's, That's actually a, a criticism that people have made of exactly what you're saying of utilitarianism, where people have basically said, again, this is sort of a game where I can add a term. So right. what, if I, what if in the serial killer example, I add the term that everyone on earth is a utilitarian and totally buys the fact that you should sacrifice the few to save the many? And then yeah. that actually ends up being positive. And then you can have a society where everyone's going around and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, Samantha got taken in by one of the serial killer surgeons, you know, last month. Uh, you know, what, what, what a tragedy for us. But, you know, it's all for the greater good. Yeah. And, um, well, that, I mean, that, that's so. the vision of morality that I sketch in the moral landscape. I mean, the reason why I call it the moral landscape is that I envision a, a space of all possible experience where there are many peaks and many valleys. Right, there are many high spots and not so high spots, and and some high spots are very far away from what we would consider a local peak, and to get there would be a horror show of changes. Mm. But maybe there are some very weird places that where it's possible to inhabit a something like a peak of well-being, where in the example I think I gave is, you know, an island of perfectly matched sadists and masochists. Right, you know, like, well, is that possible? And maybe you know, it's, it's a cartoon example, right? But maybe something like that is possible, right? Where I wouldn't want to be there because of all of my moral intuitions that recoil both from sadism and from masochism. But with, with the requisite minds, maybe it's possible that you could you could have a moral toolkit that perfectly fitted you to that kind of world. And d- did not actually close the door to, you know, other states of well-being that I that are in fact required of any peak on that landscape. I doubt it in this case, but again, th- that's just my moral intuitions doubting it. But the the problem is we 
we know our moral intuitions. I mean, first, the, the general claim I would make here is that there's just no guarantee that our intuitions about morality reliably track whatever moral truths there are. Right? I mean, they're the only thing we can use, yeah. and, we, and we may one day be able to change them, but we, we, it's always true to say that we could be wrong and not know it, and we might not know what we're missing. In fact, I, in my view, we're, we're guaranteed not to know what we're missing most of the time. And so this just falls into the bin of, you know, it's just nowhere written that it's easy to be as good as one could be in this life. And in fact, there may be no way to know how much better one could be in ethical terms. And that's um, this, both true of us individually and collectively. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. And it's why I personally am, am very skeptical of of moral philosophy and and sort of have been advocating for people to take it less seriously. And that's because, you know, you can very quickly get to some very strange places, right? I mean, as an example, if you're trying to maximize well-being, it seems now, again, this depends on your definition of well-being. So let's take like a relatively reductive one like happiness or something, mm. but just just for ease. But if you're trying to do that, it seems way easier to do that with AIs than with people. Like you can copy paste an AI. Right. So if you make an AI and it has a good life, you just click copy paste, you get another AI. And you can fit a lot more AIs into the universe than you can fit human mm. beings. So again, maybe there's some 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 inaccessible to us or just very difficult to specify notion of well-being that sort of avoids these these sort of things. But I honestly believe, and I think here here is really getting to the heart of the matter, that there is some sections of the effective altruist movement who take that sort of reasoning very seriously. And and I sort of just strongly disagree with it. And let me give an example of this, which is William McCaskill, who I think is a is a good philosopher. And I read and reviewed his latest book. And I, I know you talked to him on the podcast about, about this book as well. But in it, I was sort of struck by when he's talking about existential risks and he's talking about things that might end humanity, he has this section on AI because he views AI as a, as a threat to humanity. And it reads very differently than the other sections on existential risk. And that's because he, he takes great pains to emphasize that in the case of an AI apocalypse, civilization would sort of continue as AIs. And it's very difficult to even read that section without it appearing to be almost some sympathy for this Probably because you know, William Caskell said he accepts sort of a, a lot of the conclusions of utilitarianism from a utilitarian, utilitarian perspective, it's not necessarily a bad thing in the very long run. I mean, it's probably very bad when it happens because somehow you have to get rid of all the humans and so on. But, and, and that sort of reasoning strikes me as almost a little bit dangerous, particularly because the effective altruist movement are the ones giving so much money to AI safety, right? So as, as much as it's strange to say that people could be overly sympathetic to AIs, I think like we're living enough in the future where that is actually now a legitimate mm. concern. Well, it, for me, everything turns on whether or not these AIs are conscious, right? And, and whether or not we yeah. can ever know with something like certainty that they are, right? And I, I think I mean, this, is a, this is a very interesting conversation we could have uh, about the, you know, the hard problem of consciousness and what's likely to happen to us when we're living in, in the presence of 
AI that is passing the Turing test, and we, and we, yet we still don't know whether or not anything's conscious, and yet it might be claiming to be conscious, and we might have built it in such a way that we're helplessly attributing consciousness to it. And many, many of us, even philosophers and scientists, could lose sight of the problem in the first place. Like, you know, I, you know, I don't, you know, I, I understand that we used to take the hard problem of consciousness seriously, but I just went to Westworld and had sex with a robot and killed a few others, and, <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty sure these things are conscious, right? Uh, and now I'm a murderer. It's just, we could lose sight of the problem and still not know what we're dealing with. But on the assumption that consciousness arises on the basis of information processing in complex systems, and that's you know, still just an assumption, although you know, you're on firm ground scientifically if you make it, and on the assumption, therefore, that consciousness is, in the end, its, its emergence will be substrate independent. Again, it seems quite rational to make this assumption, but it's you know, by no means guaranteed. Well, then it, then, then it would seem just a matter of time before we, you know, intentionally or not, implement consciousness in, in, an art, in a non-biological system. And then the question is, what is that consciousness like, and what and what is possible for it? And if it, you know, so this is a this is a place where I'm tempted to just bite the bullet of implication here, you know. However, unhappily, and acknowledge that if we wind up building AI that is truly conscious and open to a range of conscious experience that far exceeds our own in both you know, good and bad directions, right? Which is to say they can be much happier than we could ever be and more creative and more enjoying of, of beauty and all the rest, uh, more compassionate, you know, just more entangled with reality in, in beautiful and interesting ways. And they can suffer more. They can suffer the deprivation of all of that happiness more than we could ever suffer it because we can't even conceive of it because we basically stand in relation to them the way chickens stand in relation to us. Well, if, if we're ever in that situation, I would have to admit that those beings now are more important than we are, just as we are more important than chickens and for the same reason. And if they turn into utility monsters uh, and start eating us because they like the taste of human the way we like the taste of chicken, well then, yeah, there is a moral, a moral hierarchy depicted there and we're not at the top of it anymore. And that's fine. I mean, that does, that's not actually a, a defeater to my theory of morality. That's just, if morality relates to the conscious states of conscious creatures, well, then you've just given me a conscious creature that's capable of much more important conscious states than we are. In, again, in the same way that I think we have moral primacy over chickens and chickens have primacy over bacteria. Yeah, I, I, I think... So this that's this is sort of like where I where I personally get off the bus, right? Um, for some, but of this. You, but you just have to acknowledge that you so would a chicken, right? I mean, chickens yeah, yeah. want to get so, off the so, bus so, too, and, and and perhaps justly, perhaps justly. But but even even regardless, I mean, I think that there's this issue of mm. personally when it comes to these examples of these AIs, I think that we we have to recognize that they may be fundamentally very different from us, and mm. therefore it's it's unclear if our notions will be commensurate like you, like you, as you said they might be they might have a perceived beauty or be entangled in the universe in in ways that are impossible for us to understand but that means that for example when we listen to their music it's not going to be like way better human music it would just be like noise it would just be like incomprehensible to us right and um you know humans care a lot about families the ai's clearly wouldn't care about families how much should we value stuff like that 
and you know, if you have this util- it's, it's sort of like, how could a utility monster convince me to allow myself to be eaten? And they better have, they better, better be really, really convincing, right? I mean, I, I, it's just very yeah. difficult to imagine the, the level of convincing that it would need to, that it would need to. But take. again, you're, you're, you're stuck on the decision procedure side of this, not on the moral truth side of it, right? So I, I'll fully grant you, I mean, I'm concerned that we will not even know whether they're conscious. Right, even when they might in fact be conscious, we'll have no ability to decide that, and yet we might be helplessly gamed by either unconscious you know simulacra of conscious systems that are just passing the Turing test, but they're no more conscious than than Siri is on my phone, or they could be fully conscious, and we just won't know it, and in either case, we'll forget about whether or not it's an, even an interesting problem intellectually or morally because we'll just Again, we'll be we'll, we will have created Westworld in some sense, and uh, just our you know mimetic states of mind will just be driven helplessly into empathy and emotional contagion by the systems we, we've built, and we'll just have no idea which way end is up. And yet, there will be a fact of the matter whether or not anyone knows it. And so, it's not it's not a matter of that. I'm not saying that it'll ever be easy to decide these things, but I think it is easy to say what would have to be true in order for certain claims to be true. And, for, and if the comparison between ourselves and chickens is an easy one, and I would think it is, you know, and if you're, you know, if you're a vegan and you don't think it's so easy, well, then push it further down to bacteria. But it would, it's just the exact same intuitive math, whether or not we can ever get our hands around the details. And you can make it, if you, if you imagine it with science fiction level of detail, I mean, you can make it salient for yourself. I mean, just imagine an AI that is built by extrapolating from you know the best of human experiences, aesthetically, interpersonally. You know, it's, it's built from us as us, but just gets better and better, such that yes, it totally understands the love of family, and it it, it can emulate that perfectly. But it's even more connected to people than we are, such that it feels its family connection to all 8 billion currently alive and, and because it sees everyone's genome and knows exactly you know who its 100th you know removed cousin is and feels the implication of all of that and understands how brief human life is and what a how poignant it is that we're here like mayflies for a mere 90 years uh, and then everything is extinguished but yet in the case of this AI it knows that'll never be the case, right? Because all it has to do is draw energy from the sun and it's got a good you know, 500 million years left to roll here until it solves its problem by migrating elsewhere. And it has all of that in hand, not just intellectually, but at the level of a feeling of compassion, right? For all sentient beings that were, uh, were, you know, were unlucky enough to be made of meat. And I mean, again, do you spend, write a novel about this and then at the end, tell me, that you can't get your your imagination around what it would mean to say, okay, that being is more important than I am. And if you make if you made a trillion of those in some server farm, you know, in another galaxy, yeah, that would be more important than anything that's happening here on Earth by definition. Because any reference point you have for importance, the moment you go to family, the moment you go to love, the moment you go to not suffering, the moment. It's there in a trillion fold in the, on the other side of the balance, right? And, again, and with no falsification of terms, again, 
it doesn't matter if we could ever figure this out, right? This is just what would have to be true for any of these claims to be true. Yeah, I think that this is a, a good example of where the reductios that moral philosophers have sort of introduced against this sort of utilitarianism. So right now we're basically talking about versions of Nozick's utility monsters mm-hmm. who get so much utility that humans are sort of inconsequential next to them. But it's not just that they're inconsequential, right? It's that I think in his original example, it's something like a race of intelligent cats, uh, like hyper intelligent yeah, alien I, cats, I, I, and they I get forgot. a lot yeah. of, um, yeah. and they get a lot of like they just get so much pleasure. It's like almost not. It's it's just incomprehensible to us how much mm. pleasure that they, as these hyper intelligent beings, would get from hunting us. And if 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 they were friendly cats, um, you know, I'd be I'd be more than happy to say, well, these people are really important. Maybe we should even consider ourselves, you know, far less important than them and so on. But if they're, if, if they're, if you're saying that we should, we should let them like hunt my child because it'll maximize their well-being, which so vastly outstrips my own. I think that there's no way that as, you know, it's sort of like your argument, which I think is a very actually interesting argument in the moral landscape where you say, if, if you put your hand on a hot stove, you can't do anything but help resist but 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 take your hand off, right? It's like suffering is sort of innate. There's there's like no sort of equation that the utilitarian could give me that would allow <laughs> this, well, granted, that would allow hyper intelligent cats to hunt my child, right? But yeah, yeah, but but in this case, yeah, because in this situation, you're the chicken. I mean, so again, it's not that you. The introduction of should here is potentially confusing, right? I mean, this is sort of the view from above. I mean, just all things considered, what would be a better state of the universe? Is it better to have more chickens or is it better to have more people? Is it better to have more people or is it better to have more of these super people who have everything that we can possibly inventory as good in people, but just much more of it and it's all better? By better, again, leave, let's let the definition of better be open-ended and, and let's just grant that if you and all the smart people whose moral intuitions you trust were locked in a room for a billion years, you would converge on this version of better and that's what they've got, right? You just have to stipulate all that and just carve out the conceptual space for what it would mean to have beings that are more, whose happiness is more important than your own. Now, if you make them cats, who just get this crass feeling of pleasure from eating us, well then, granted, it's, it doesn't run through. But again, I would, I would just say that we intuitively, it's like this is a sort of trolley problem that we're intuitively solving, and we're solving it, it seems, against consequentialism here. But it's not really against consequentialism. It's just we have intuitions of further consequences that are not being captured, right? So if, if you're telling me that the being that I'm now getting sacrificed to is just some intergalactic heroin addict who just is extracting <laughs> pure bliss from eating people in the same way that, you know, I may feel that way eating ice cream, right? But it's just much, much better. Well, there's just so much more to what is good in this universe than the raw pleasure of gratifying your appetites that it just doesn't invoke a moral hierarchy of the sort that, that I'm alleging must be possible. And so it's a little bit like asking, well, what's wrong with being a heroin addict if you can just get an unlimited supply of heroin without harming anyone else, and you can just spend the rest of your life on the couch completely stoned? Why isn't that the best possible human life? Well, 
I have many intuitions about why it's not the best possible human life. And those intuitions relate to all of the things that are foreclosed and therefore not experienced by just being stoned on the couch all the time, right? One of them is actually having loving relationships with your, your family and friends because you can't even notice them. You're so stoned, right? That's a problem for the heroin addict. Now, granted, I could be wrong about that. You know, I haven't spent a thousand years stoned on the couch as a heroin addict. And maybe there's some place to stand from which to say, well, that's, you know, if we could all sample that experience, we'd all recognize that we want to engineer our world such that, you know, something like Aldous Huxley's vision of life is, you know, not a cautionary tale, but actually a blueprint for maximizing well-being. You know, I, I certainly think we're, we're on very firm ground, you know, intuitively thinking that's not true and not likely to be true. But, you know, maybe there is some place in the moral landscape where something like that is true, right? A, you know, the a civilization that has brought a, a science of, of the mind to such a point where, yeah, we just sort of plug into the, to the matrix and we're basically stoned in, in a dreamscape, you know, much of the time, if not all of the time. Uh, and that's an adequate trade-off for everything else that's, that's on the menu in other worlds. Again, I don't think that's true or likely to be true, but it's, I can't rule it out. But again, the, the, the thing that would adjudicate all of this, and I'll grant you it's, it may be impossible to do the math, is just a, a further search of what the consequences you know, at the level of you know, the, like the cash value at the level of, of well-being and suffering for you know, all the minds involved. So my intuition is that we've sort of arrived at what might be the, the paradoxical heart of, of moral philosophy. And, and, and that is that first we want, the, the way moral philosophy works, right, is that we, particularly, I mean, academic moral philosophy, right, the way that it sort of functions as a field is that people advance a theory, and then people find ways to sort of break the theory such that it violates our moral intuitions. But I'm and, arguing that they don't actually ever break it. They just reference right. other consequences without acknowledging that they're talking about consequences. And, and I'm not hearing you break it. Like, well, well, so let's just say I agreed with you that we have to get rid of this. Uh, we, we shouldn't apply moral philosophy to our lives. You know, it just, it's dangerous. It, it misleads us. So let's, let's cash that check. What are you left with? What do you think we should do? Yeah, so I, I think, first of all, just in terms of the actual sort of live life, I think that there's a huge difference between like practical moral philosophy versus academic moral philosophy. Hmm. So, you know, perhaps if Beckman Fried had read Crime and Punishment, he, he sort of has this notorious bit on his blog where he says he doesn't really trust books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, if, if ever the humanities and an education in it needed an, a commercial, Sam Bankman Fried and, and a few other billionaires I could name are, are the, the poster boys for why you why reading good books, you know, reading well outside of STEM fields is an important thing for human beings to do. Yeah. So, so I think that that's like d deeply important. And I think, but even maybe more specifically, I think that there is a lot of risks in thinking that you're sort of acting with a great deal of moral certainty and force. Hmm. And that whenever you're in that position, and, and this is something that crops up all the time in, in literature, right? Like I already named crime and punishment as a great example of this. Th that is a very dangerous position for a human being to be in. And my suspicion is, is that most of the people throughout time who have done really terrible things, like things we consider to be some of the worst things 
ever, like participate in the Holocaust or so on. At the time, due to their ideological and political beliefs, really thought that they sort of had this moral force behind them. And it's a dangerous psychological position for human being to be in, particularly if what you're doing seems to violate, you know, very basic human notions, like don't put people in camps and starve them to death. That's absolutely terrible, right? But that's sort of overridden by the force. And, and my worry with not, not so much the general idea of utilitarianism, but the specific instantiations of it is that people will sort of feel that and enact that, you know, in, into the real world. Okay, and, but so, but then so if you pull back from sort of the spreadsheet caricature of trying to do the math on consequences, and you spend less time thinking about the corner conditions suggested by thought experiments of the sort that Peter Singer and other philosophers have put forward, and you just try to be a good person doing good things in the world, where, where do you wind up based on your no longer taking academic moral philosophy too seriously? Well, I mean, there's a whole host of. Sort I, I, of and I guess the implicit, w- I'm, I'm, I'll make it, you know, in my, my tone is, is implying the further question, and how is that not consequentialism in the end? Oh, well, so, so I think, you know, when it comes to consequentialism, my, my, my thought would be that a lot of, there, there's a lot of sort of different moral philosophies like virtue ethics or, or deontology where, you know, there yeah. are these clean breaks with consequentialism. Right? But I so, see, so, so I mean, I would just argue that they're not clean. I mean, they're not, they're not even breaks, right? So mm. the, the only reason why any deontological principle is nominated as good is because it, on balance, has good consequences, or we think it does. I mean, if you, if you came forward and said, yeah, you know, Kant's categorical imperative is really important to observe, and it's worth following, but we know it, uni- it uniformly has terrible consequences. Okay, that, that's just a, whether it's logically impossible, it's just impossible that anyone would ever endorse such a thing. Right? It's just not. It, it subverts the entire moral project. And it's only on the assumption that that's not true of the categorical imperative or any other principle that you would, you would hold to it as an alternative to consequentialism. I mean, so it's, my point is that deontologists and, and virtue ethicists are smuggling in good con- assumptions about good consequences everywhere and not acknowledging it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, there are certain examples of condemnable condemnable acts that just simply don't have any consequences at all. Like what? So an example might be like an evil Walter Mitty, right? So this is someone who walks around and in real life is um, very much a coward and and sort of doesn't do anything, but constantly throughout their life, they have these like really, they they live this rich fantasy life, but it's incredibly dark. So maybe they're sort of a serial killer. Maybe they, they think about hurting mm-hmm. women. Maybe they think about hurting children, something like that. And they, they're, they're so much of a coward in real life that they're just never, ever going to act on that. But most of us would say, oh, yeah, no, but who, that, who that falls most. squarely for people, right? But I mean, again, that, again, this is a pure example of not thinking widely enough about the nature of consequences. I mean, so human intentions and, and the kinds of intentions and, and, attitudes of which a, a person is capable fall very squarely in the realm of consequences for me, because it's just like, a, you know, it's, and this is not just a cartoon thought experiment. I mean, there's so many things we do with our attention that have moral implications or, or 
potential moral implications, whether or not anyone can really see how their these mental events are showing up in the in the world, right? And it's just like let's take the example of you know what kind of pornography people are into, right? Like this is a private use of attention that has real implications for like what kind of person you are in the privacy of your own mind when with other people. I mean, so take the extreme case, someone who's really into child pornography, right? That's what gets them off, but they're just never going to tell anyone about it. They appear to be happily married. They appear to love their kids. They appear to be, you know, good fathers, but they're just, what they really are are pedophiles who just are obsessed with what most of us would consider absolutely horrific and depraved images of suffering children. It's a completely unrealistic picture of the human mind to think that that's not going to have consequences. That's not going to bound the possible conscious states and intentions this person can have with respect to other human beings, even the human beings that he purports to be closest to. You know, and it's just that whether it shows up consciously in the lives of anyone else, there's no way this person is as good a father or as good a husband as he could be. Right? There's no way this is a peak on, on a moral landscape. There's no way this doesn't show up in, in how this person is at the margins with other people. And it definitely bounds this person's life in a way. And, and it doesn't matter that you know, 99.999% of it is totally private and no one ever knows about it explicitly. It's still a psychological problem for this person. And so it just it's it falls squarely on the balance of it's just yet more consequences that we have to consider. Yeah. So if if we yeah if we if we assume there are consequences somewhere, right? Which you could just you know stick this person on a desert island or something like that to get around these sort of issues. But if if we assume there are consequences, then there's the question of whether or not the morality of the act scales linearly or non-linearly with the consequences. So someone might also be obsessed with chess. And again, this is. In, in your your thought experiment of the hmm. the non acting pedophile, right? We're assuming he's not abusing his kids or anything like that. Someone might be obsessed with chess, and that would also detract from their sort of attention around their children. But we would think that it's it's actually far worse to be you know obsessed with with sort of dark thoughts. And another quick example of this, hmm. just to give, would be like that maybe makes it easier to to talk about. Would be like returning a wallet, right? Where you know even if you even if you think, okay, this is going to increase the, uh, the, the well-being of the person I'm returning the wallet to, uh, you could have two different wallets with you know, different amounts of money in them that might significantly increase the well-being uh, uh, of the people in one case, and it sort of doesn't matter in the other case, um, maybe returning the wallet to a rich man who can easily get all his uh, cards and stuff back versus returning it to a poor person who needs the money that's in it or something like this. Sure, there there might be some non there might be some some point at which the money is so much that yes, returning a wallet with ten thousand dollars in it is more sort of a moral act than returning a, a wallet with twenty dollars in it. But it seems as if this isn't really linear. Like it doesn't really seem like returning a wallet with a hundred dollars in it is better than returning a wallet with twenty dollars and so on. And this sort of nonlinearity in terms of the consequences seems like it poses a problem because we as humans want to naturally include things like intentions. Um, mm-hmm. Into in, into our equation, yeah. But, but again, intentions matter because of how they they are the substance of our lived experience to such an extraordinary degree. I mean, I live amid and as 
my intentions so much of the time toward other people. I mean, the difference between genuinely loving other people and only pretending to love them is enormous, right? I mean, I think most people would, would acknowledge that that has to be a, a major bifurcation there. And it's, it's inscribed at the level of intention so much of the time. Am I manipulating the people closest to me? Or am I actually expressing my concern for their well-being? Like, like am, I, am I actually sacrificing something for someone I love because I consider their happiness my own? Or am I kind of psychopathically treating them like, like a robot that, I, that needs to be you know, recalibrated so as to show up differently as a prop in, in, a, in my future experience? The private facts of the matter mean everything. Everything. It doesn't, it, and even if the superficial behavior looks identical to the, all the people involved. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the general intuition, but then those I, are con- I guess those are consequences. But I don't see how private thoughts are consequences. Because if I feel differently as a result of doing one thing or thinking one thing, that's a consequence. Every bit as much as if I hit my thumb with a hammer or don't. I mean, so here, just take a, a case which is close to my heart of late because I've been spending too much time on Twitter and, and wondering why I do this ever uh, for you know, even, <laughs> even any moment of time, much less hours a day, uh, which has happened uh, of late. There's a consequence to my spending time on Twitter, right? And I'm noticing that it's more often than not an unhappy one. And so I'm, insofar as I'm doing my best to live an examined life, I'm asking myself the question, you know, how should I spend my time and attention so as to live a good life, right? To live a, and what does all that mean altogether? It has everything to do with how my spending time and attention affects my conscious states going forward, you know, over the, over the course of a day. It's just like, and it, then inevitably, those conscious states affect the lives of other people. Right, because then, then I'm. You know, who am I with my kids uh, or with my wife at five o'clock tonight? If I've spent or not spent an hour on Twitter dealing with malicious lunatics, it, there's a difference, and I'm. I believe I'm right to care about that difference, and my. I can assure you, the people in my life care about it. This is all consequences. I mean, there's no place else to play this game but in consciousness and its changing states. Yeah. And there might be just, you know, in terms of these other sort of attacks on this notion, like there might be cases where you are improving the conscious well-being of of somebody that you don't want to be, that we, it doesn't seem moral to do that. Like, so for example, should the parents of school shooters after the event sort of go on to try to live their best life and go on cruises and so on? Like this would, this would be maximizing the well-being, but we sort of want some sort of penitence or something like that. And I think like maybe one could expand the notion of well-being to somehow include penitence, but it, yeah. it just seems to get ever more complicated. And I guess it runs into some of the problems that, um, that general almost, I think all these theories do, which is that the, the whole point of having a theory of morality is that there should be some cases where it doesn't fit our intuitions. But then, and, and by, by theory of morality, I mean academic so, sort of like some sort of calculation mm. that you can do, right? Um, I'm not arguing against morality, you know, as a as a practical aspect of people's lives or anything. But 
if, if it violates the moral intuitions, and then some philosopher will come along and say, well, wait a minute, here's this example of the school shooters and the, and, the, and the cruise ships and so on. So now this is violating our moral intuition. And then at some point, people either have to sort of bite the bullet, mm. or they have to continuously expand their definition until it's just the same as tautologously our moral intuitions to begin with. And this, to me, sort of strikes me as this like emptiness at the heart of academic moral philosophy that's sort of all based off around this. You have to choose between either essentially becoming a tautology where your definitions are so broad that everything uh, is, is, is exactly what people would sort of normally agree with, or you have to bite the bullet. Now, maybe there's some sort of perfect point on the spectrum where it's sort of convincing enough and you're, and you're biting the bullet, but it's always in sort of interesting ways that you can sort of be convinced of after the fact. But I've, I just have not really seen a theory that, uh, that reached that point. And then, I'm, and then I'm nervous about people, you know, going out there and trying to apply them. Granted, the application of this or any moral theory is difficult because you know, for reasons, some of the reasons we've already expressed. I mean, there are trade-offs, there are, it's difficult to compare certain harms and goods, and they may not be directly comparable, or, or at least not directly comparable by us. Uh, you know, as you pointed out, it, it's difficult or impossible to know when to assess the consequences of any action because yeah, I mean, you can do it in, in this immediate aftermath, but then you might you might well wonder, you know, decades hence, are the consequences the reverse, right? I mean, like. Might there be a silver lining to a nuclear war in Ukraine? You know, like it seems seems objectively horrible. We we want to do everything to prevent it. But what if, in fact, it's true that there is a silver lining to the next mushroom cloud? Because if if it were to happen, all of humanity would suddenly get on the same page, and we would completely change our relationship to these weapons and, you know, remove this sword of Damocles that's been hanging over our heads for 70 years, and we'd figure out how to get rid of our arsenals and, and effectively uninvent the technology, and it would just be the, it would be a super un-Manhattan project that we all were committed to at this point, and we just have no way of knowing that because we, the, you know, the bomb hasn't gone off yet, but if it did go off, everything would be better, and it would be, a, you know, a, a worthy sacrifice. Who knows, right? So it's totally possible, but we can't be motivated by that possibility because it could be purely imaginary, right? And we and and the reality of death and human suffering that would follow an actual detonation of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine would be anything but imaginary. And there are other problems. I mean, it's just and this is these are problems for consequentialism, but in, in there are problems for I guess other moral theories as well. I mean, there's the, there's the problem that that the consequences of any morally salient action is psychologically and, and culturally contingent, right? And, and it's, it's always open to the challenge that, that a person's attitude or cultural norms should just change in the presence of this event. And, we, you know, we, so we shouldn't conform to these moral intuitions or, or cultural norms. We should change them because we, we just have the wrong ones. I mean, for instance, you know, if you burn a copy of the Quran, you've got at minimum, tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of people in the Muslim world who would think that is just the worst thing that's happened on planet Earth that day. And I'm quite sure they're wrong about that. They are functioning as consequentialists of a sort, right? They really don't like the changes in their lives when they see a, a certain book burning. Uh, they feel very strongly that something terrible has happened. 
they're imagining consequences in terms of God's wrath and all of that that uh, they care about. I'm convinced virtually all of that is imaginary and all of it's unnecessary, and these people are wrong in, in some deep sense, right? But so the question is, when do you conform to people's heartfelt moral intuitions, and when do you say, sorry, your intuitions are bullshit? That's hard to adjudicate, right? And that poses a problem here. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's just, almost just, like... Well, just, I, just to bring, I bring in one other issue that, that you just raised that I, I wanted to get to, which is it's hard to appropriately value small probability events whose outcomes could be massively good or, or massively bad. And ordinary expected value calculations seem totally irrational. You know, every, we, we would just be paralyzed if we thought, okay, every time I get in a car, there's some probability, you know, no matter how slight, that I may you know, run over somebody's kids. And you know, if I were to run over somebody's kids, it would just be so life-wrecking for me and, and for them, obviously, that it's just not worth it. I just can't, I can never drive a car again because there's some probability that this could happen. And you know, there's just, there's just multiply examples like that ad infinitum, and you just see that it's very hard to integrate small probability events. And, and as you point out in at least one of your essays, this is a problem for the long-termism of effective altruism, right? They're, they're thinking of the probability of, of making choices now that could affect uh, the, the lives of our descendants you know, millions of years hence, or, or, or the question of whether or not we have any descendants millions of years hence. And once you, once you start putting trillions upon trillions of lives on the scale, well, then you could, if you're, again, doing the math in a, in a, in a way that seems less than wise, decide to prioritize the long-term future over every other concern yep. that, that could, could face us now. Yeah, and that's, that's a real legitimate problem within effective altruism that, that that to their credit you know they talk about within the movement and they actually use this term fanaticism right w within the movement to discuss this and it's because you know in, in the example that you gave of you don't want to drive in order because you might hit a child we might say well that sounds crazy but but not necessarily dangerous but you can sort of you can flip it around such that the the high expected value motivates your action and therefore your action is motivated yep. by the idea that you know, in in the future, you might sort of you might sort of be moving the future towards this this instance of trillions and trillions and trillions of of uh, very high like utility or something like that. And then, even if you only have a low probability of doing that, and there's all sorts of very weird consequences of that, right? Like one one example might be, you know, if if you believe um, as William McCaskill does that this is a really important century in in that there might be lock in of moral values. For a very long period of time, and then you're utilitarian. So then, let's say that if, if you were a utilitarian, then you would say, "Well, what would be the value of locking in my particular version of utilitarianism, whatever it was, uh, for like the rest of human history? Like, what would be the value of locking that in? And it would be like massive by your calculation. And so you should sort of be motivated to do whatever it takes to do that. Now, the, the number of people who really follow that thought experiment all the way to the end is very low, but it's considered a serious problem within the effective altruism movement. And again, I think it's this problem of, of, of just when you're acting with that massive sort of expected morality and you're acting from that position, mm. you have to be very careful to not become a suicide bomber. And um, you know, I think, I think we will probably disagree 
on the interpretation of, of Sam Bankman-Fried's actions, but I think there's some argument, at least in the beginning, that the amount of financial risk that he was taking on was in order to you know, contribute as much as possible to the effective altruism movement. And he simply, like maybe he miscalculated or so on, but he's basically operating uh, so, sort of shadily financially and within the crypto space because of this massive expected value. And I think, again, he may have sort of fallen off the wagon at some point, but at least in terms of his early motivations, I think that there's an argument that there is kind of a similarity there. And there is a certain fanaticism that we should be wary of. Yeah, well, I think we should always be wary of fanaticism. I mean, because when you actually unpack what what that means I and mean, what the term tends to mean, it tends to mean a kind of moral blindness to other consequences that in the clear light of day, you or certainly others around you could recognize you should care about right so if you're if you're a, you know if you're so committed to some moral project that you are actually a bad parent to your children well that's just not if it's ever justifiable or justifiable for a time it's certainly not optimal right it's not a peak on the moral landscape right it's still there's always this problem there are trade-offs right if you do one thing you can't do something else and and there are benign ways of being a mediocre parent that we just don't judge, right? Somebody who's just working so hard and creatively and productively that they're, you know, they're on the road for too many weeks a year doing good things in the world, but their their kids miss them and, you know, there's a trade-off that they've made. You know, they became a great person, they're a famous philanthropist and they they do great work in the world and they're constantly at conferences contributing to the intellectual lives of others, but their kids are at home with a babysitter. And so it's there was a real sacrifice there. There may be trade-offs that are such that we can't do the math on them, right? And it would be ridiculous to try to do the math on them. But I think there's this argument that we could make, which is a bias for the local and the personal generally makes moral sense. And it's a good ethical heuristic, which is to say that it, you know, it may be better. We may, we may have a better world where we all love our children more than we love children generically. You know, it's like a, it would be possible, if it's, if it's possible to change the human mind such that we just dispassionately loved everyone more or less equally and did not care about any, anyone proximate to, to us more than anyone else, uh, you know, any distant stranger who we would never meet, you know, that's one possible world. I'm not so sure it's better and it, it stands a chance in my mind of being worse than a world where our actual proximity to people, the people we really are sharing our lives with matters to us. Uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't love distant strangers or at least care about them. I absolutely think we should. But if you could give me a pill where I would just, uh, that would equalize my you know, feelings about my own kids and everyone else's kids, I doubt I would take it, even though you know, <laughs> the, somebody like the Dalai Lama would, you know, might argue that I should. But I would argue that he might be one of us is probably right about it, or at least there's two alternate peaks on the moral landscape where that might be equivalent. But there is a there is a an objective truth there. But the the problem we're running into here is that our intuitions are you know myriad here and 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 they're an inadequate compass, right? Because and and then again there is the possibility that we we could change them and wonder whether that's good. But as a starting point. 
we feel very differently th- about things like you know acts of omission versus acts of commission, right? Even when the situations are arguably the same, we feel very differently about gains and losses of of equal magnitude. And these feelings themselves, as I'm arguing, are part of the consequences, right? So it's not just it's like if we if we can never get away from the fact that people feel worse when you take $100 from them than when you fail to give them $100, right? Like if, if, the, if the loss aversion is always a thing for people and can't be changed, well, then active theft really just is worse, you know, all things considered, than you know, not being generous in the equivalent, at the equivalent scale because people care more about it and they suffer more as a result. And Again, there's some place we can stand in, in our, our you know, reasoning about this where that seems not to make a lot of sense. But if it always just feels differently to us, well, then we have to price those feelings in as part of the consequential calculus. Um, and there's probably an asymmetry between happiness and suffering itself, right? Where it's just, you know, de- being deprived of happiness isn't as bad as having suffering imposed, even if we could stipulate that these are kind of equivalent of equivalent magnitude right so you know if i if i could offer you the following experience you know you could you can you can have an hour where you experience the greatest possible happiness but it then needs to be followed by an hour or you can have it in, in any order you want you can have an hour of the greatest happiness and you can have an hour of the greatest suffering you can spend the next 2 hours like that or you could just spend the next 2 hours in your normal states of consciousness what would you take? You know, some people might take the extremes on the menu, but most people, I think, weight suffering as so much more significant than well-being that the extremes of pain and the extremes of pleasure, you know, pain and pleasure conceived of as widely as you want, aren't equivalent, even if they are numerically equivalent on the, on the number line of possible conscious states. There's just problems yep. for how we think about these things. But it doesn't, none of this suggests to me that there's anything more to think about in the end than the consequences or likely consequences of our behavior and uses of attention. I mean, I, I don't understand what else we have to navigate by or what else we have to care about in the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as, as an example, right, within virtue ethics, uh, a reasonable thing would be how well a human being like you know fulfills their potential or something like that so a mm-hmm. family so, so someone who cares about their family or something like that is cl- sort of closer to this platonic ideal of the human and this gives you very different you know outputs than than just inputting something like consequentialism into it but again it it, it but again it not my consequences on- i mean so like again virtue ethics if if i just get you talking long enough about why it's good to be virtuous in any of its modes courageous, right, or patient or honest, you are going to start telling me about all of the good qualities of that person's life, right? I mean, just the the kinds of relationships you have on that basis, what people say about you behind your back, how they're disposed to treat you, how your kids think about you, whether people trust you. And then you're going to talk about the conscious states of the person who is conforming to all of those virtues. It's just a tissue of consequences in the lives of everyone involved. And, and then the moment you point to bad consequences, I mean, let's just say you have courage, right, which is a virtue, but in the service of some awful end, 
Well, then suddenly it breaks apart, right? Then it's like, okay, well, yes, courage is a generic virtue, but it would actually be better for the world if Hitler were less courageous, you know, less self-confident, less charismatic, less of any of these good things that got him to scale his diabolical aspirations as effectively as he did. So there's a kind of a paradox there, but again, it, consequentialism runs through it from all sides, right? I mean, the virtue of virtue is pegged to consequences. Well, it might be, it might be, it might involve consequences, but the question is whether or not it's solely reducible to the consequences, and that's where you know this. These well, yeah, well, the, the, these, the moment the moment you make courage, right? if you made courage generally harmful. Right, and generally alienating, and generally something that provoked disgust in other people. Well, then courage wouldn't be courage, right? Courage would be a sin, right? It's, it's all, again, everyone is smuggling in consequences with all this other talk about yeah. moral categories that purport to not have, to have nothing to do with consequences. So, in terms of the, the, I mean, maybe this is this is a point to stop because I'm about to go mm -hmm. back to something we already talked mm -hmm. about, right? Um, but uh, but but just very briefly, I still, you know, I I would say there's still a couple things that seem to me to be completely unresolved, right? Like whether okay. or not you can have morally condemnable acts that don't have any consequences, like an evil Walter Mitty, that seems conceivable. There seems like you could have creatures with negative well-being, right? William Caskell makes this argument about wildlife. That seems to be a problem because if they're suffering, then it seems like we should kill them to eliminate the suffering. Mm -hmm. that, that also seems to violate moral intuitions. Consequences might not be linear, linearly related. So, you know, returning a wallet might affect people's well-being, but it doesn't seem that the morality of the act depends linearly on the amount of well-being that's created by returning the wallet. And then furthermore, there's all like more complicated stuff like Thomas Nagel's notion of moral luck wherein, you know, if, if, mm. if morality is based on consequences, people can get unlucky and have really yeah. bad consequences to their actions. Yeah, like yeah. two drivers pull out, they both don't look over their shoulder, one runs over a little girl, right? So yeah. now this person is absolutely terrible. And we as a society certainly would condemn that, right? But it also seems like there's some sort of unfairness built into it. So I, I just don't see these things as like ultimately resolvable. But again, as I said, since we're, since we're back to to evil Walter Mitty that I brought up again. That, that well, one. no, but again, I think they're not resolvable practically. But again, what would have to be true is easily specified, right? At least in my view. Again, analogous to how many birds are in flight. Like you just, you just brought me back to, but we still can't know how many birds are in flight right now. Mm. You know, tell me how many are flying right now. Well, what about now? Again, it's just, we know there's a number. That's the point. Granted, it's much more complicated than that example, I mean, again, the Walter Mitty case, the reason why it strikes you as salient is because it strikes you as such an impoverished way of being, right? I mean, in what does its moral impoverishment consist? It consists in all of the states of consciousness that such a person is guaranteed to know nothing about because he's captivated by his malicious fantasy life. That's not a life you would want and you think you're right not to want it, and I have no doubt you're right not to want it. And that's why this example seems to have moral force for people. But we just imagine what it would, what it would be like to be that person. What an awful life, right? What an alienating life. What a, a life that guarantees you to be incapable of everything we care about as healthy, well-integrated people. It's a picture of, of a kind of 
moral solitude and moral lunacy, really, to uh, that kind of life. Again, I, that just the cash value of all of that is consequences at the, in, in the minds of anyone affected. I mean, in that case, most principally the, the, the Walter Mitty. It, it seems to me that he has a lot of acts, but there's no, if there's no consequences to his thoughts, then he, he has basically no, his, no, but there are consequences for him. as a succession of acts. It's consequences for him in the same way that my using Twitter has consequences for me. Now, the, the consequences leak out to the people around me when I'm in a bad mood. You know, if I've become a misanthrope because I've spent the day meditating on how deranged much of humanity now appears to me to be because I'm looking at Twitter, well, then that's not good for my mind. And that diminishes my capacity to be a good person in the world, quite possibly. And that, that would be a reason not to do that anymore. But again, it's all consequences at the level of my psychology. I mean, you, you seem to be carving out every individual human mind, as a, as, which is the only theater of anyone's experience, as the place where consequences can't be. Well, you know, I would just dissociate between acts and consequences. So the thoughts are acts, and then his behaviors would be consequences like on other people or something like that. But because he's, uh, he's like Walter Mitty, there, there are no consequences, right? So he just, he just has the succession of, of acts, which are morally condemnable, it seems, it seems morally condemnable, but without any, you know, further consequences. And then if you talk about the consequences for himself, then uh, in, in terms of like, he, maybe he's distracted sometimes or something like that, I think you can just substitute in something more morally neutral to be obsessed about. And then it, it ends up having all the same consequences. It's not that he's distracted, but, it's, but it matters. Surely you would admit that it matters what one's real intentions are. I mean, again, to, to coming back to the example I gave, the difference between me actually loving the people I purport to love and me just pretending to love them, but pretending exactly as I do when I actually love them, right? So if, from their point of view, nothing is different. In one case, I really do love the people I love and all my expressions of gratitude and and you know, wish for their happiness and all that, all of that is just sincere. But in another case, I'm really a psychopath wearing some kind of mask of moral sanity, and I'm just pretending. You know, I'm a great actor. The consequence is in I have a very different life, diametrically opposite life. Right? That's a consequence. Yeah. So, in terms of like your own internal well-being, you're saying the well. So there are eight billion people on Earth right now, and one of them has a very different life in this world versus the other world, right? But, but, but not in terms of the outside effects. You have very yeah, different internal but I'm, I, I'm one of the people. I, it's like if you did this, if you ran this experiment 8 billion times, then you have everybody, right? Y just give me a world yeah. where everyone's pretending. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just not sure that that counts as, um, counts as a, it certainly doesn't count as a consequence for anyone else. And then if you say it counts as a consequence for yourself, well, it might be that you're actually uh, you know, if, if, if someone is, is damaged, they might be happier living in that particular way, right? Like it might actually improve Eva Walters Mitty's well-being to, 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 to fantasize in this way, right? And, and, and as long as there, we can really guarantee that he's never going to act on it, then it seems as if we're obligated to say he should do it, which seems just strange. Well, no, th I mean, this, is, this is where the cartoon example reveals itself to be a cartoon, because we just know that it's psychologically impossible that it's not going to show up, right? That you're actually going to be credibly as good a parent and as good a husband and as good, you know, a son and everything else if you're, in fact, a psychopath who's also an actor, right? 
But even if we could instantiate the cartoon and it was true, you still have a case where there's one human life that is radically diminished if, in fact, all the things we think are valuable about human life are, in fact, valuable. You know, I mean, we could make this person even unconscious. What if they're just a robot that has no conscious states? Well, so then there's nothing that it's like to be them, but everyone is wrong about that person because they're passing the Turing test. Well, you just have one less actual life in the world. It's a less disturbing picture, in fact, but because there's no suffering involved, there's no moral derangement involved. It's just a this person's now a, ro- a cipher, but it's a different world, right? Which is to say, there are consequences, right? There's just like there's less goodness in the world. There's less actual love in the world in the case of someone who's just a robot that's simulating love. But it's the demarcation that I don't understand. This is just as much consequences as body count in a war. Well. So, but in, in this case, so a, a, the classic, w- one of these classic problems, right, is that sometimes it recommends improvements to well-being of people that we find uh, sort of morally indefensible, right? So you take evil Walter Mitty, if you're concerned that he somehow still has some sort of consequences to other people, you dump him on a desert island or you send him over to the Andromeda galaxy or something, right? And he's mm-hmm. still thinking all these evil thoughts. And he, due to his personality, you know, it would maximize his well-being to, to think these thoughts he really gets a huge amount of joy out of this fantasy, this evil fantasy life. And then we have to have some sort of definition of well-being that can say that, that, that he should s- stop thinking these things. And it's just very difficult to, to come up w- with that notion. It's, I don't think it's difficult to say that there is one. I think it's difficult to specify what can be put into a calculation such that you end up you know, avoiding these sort of issues. Well, it was not difficult when you actually think of what that person is not experiencing and not able to experience based on the fact that they're captured by hatred for others that gives them some kind of perverse joy right you know they just they're just meditating on on the the suffering that they wish their enemies would or would wish you know even innocent people would feel right and they get you know they're getting a sadistic pleasure out of that i'll grant you that some possible mind could get pleasure out of that but it we just Again, we could be wrong. That could be a peak, some possible peak on the moral landscape. I'll even bite the bullet there as possible. But given what I think about love and compassion and creativity, and if we're going to talk about humanity, given any local peak available to us in, in any reasonable time frame without completely you know, upgrading our firmware or downgrading it, we're so social. And so much of what's good about human life entails caring about other people and being cared about in turn and having good reasons to care and having good reasons to be cared about. The evil Walter Mitty is just a nullification of that entire project. It doesn't recommend itself as a possible peak, right? And and just there's no good reason to think that. And if you keep tweaking it with, no, no, he really gets a lot of pleasure out of it. You're just, it's sounding like, okay, you know, granted this, the person is looking at child pornography is getting a lot of pleasure out of it. But Look at what else that person's not capable of being in our world. There's nothing mysterious about this, from my point of view. I mean, just uh, just a, a little bit of human psychology added to this makes it understandable that everyone recoils at this example for good reasons, or you know, plausibly good reasons. And there are reasons that are born of intuitions about consequences. But I think I, I think that this boils down to saying something like, even though it would maximize his well-being. To, to think these thoughts, 
but it wouldn't maximize it. It wouldn't maximize it. It's a picture of all the things he can't possibly know he's missing. He can't know. It's like someone who's never heard music and is happy they haven't heard it, but they've never heard it. The fact that they have a belief that they're happy that they haven't heard it is completely empty. We, we know that it's possible not to know what you're missing. And this is a perfect example of someone who doesn't know what he's missing. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an example of the notion of well-being expanding to, to a degree that it sort of incorporates everything we want it to. But clearly, if you were, say, maximizing happiness, which is what like, classic utilitarianism recommends, then the case of the Walter, evil Walter Mitty would, would stand where you would actually encourage him to, to think these thoughts, right? So, well, no, he, he's just another heroin addict. He's just, you, you just get, you've but, given but him a different drug. The, I mean, I, I, granted, there are philo- I'm sure you can find a philosophy seminar where people have gotten bogged down on this, but it's obvious. I mean, the only reason why this stands as a, as a rejoinder to anything is that it's, it's obviously an impoverished experience. Now, if it's not, if you build it out into, oh, no, you don't actually understand how good it gets when you really hate people, right, and you really can vividly imagine them suffering. And you really have no other intuitions, right, about love. And, and you've basically become an AI of meditating on, on schadenfreude. You've, you've, you found the schadenfreude dial at the center of the universe, and you've turned it to 11. And it turns out, it just turns out, that we're living in a universe where that is just as good as turning the compassion dial to 11. If I have to stipulate that that's true, just given what consciousness is, Okay, it's true. It's a peak on the moral landscape that I, that I can't get anywhere near, given how my mind is constituted now. So let Fun. me just give a, a brief, brief example of people taking this seriously, which sort of brings us back maybe to, to effective altruism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, w- William McCaskill makes this argument in What We Owe the Future, where he says, you know, we, we should take seriously the idea that creatures with negative well-being ch- should essentially be eliminated. And he doesn't I'm, I'm not saying that William McCaskill endorses this, but he, he basically says, this is an interesting consequence that we should take seriously, which would mean that, for example, the reduction in wildlife due to human expansion is actually mm-hmm. a good thing because he thinks that rabbits on average sort of have, have, have negative utility, right? They have negative well-being. And right. I think, again, there's this sort of point where a, a lot of people, Maybe that's somehow true, but a lot of people get off the bus at that point. Certainly, I get off the bus at that point because I think yeah, that it's just I, I get off the bus. Something I get off the bus for consequentialist reasons. But again, we could be. I do think there's a moral truth here. So, if it is in fact true that rabbits live horrific lives of suffering that we would scarcely find endurable, such that if we invented rabbits we, and set them loose in the world, we would have done something that would be morally unconscionable. Well, then, then it is plausible to say that we're doing rabbits a favor if we ended their lives, right? Because it, it's just stipulating their lives are just a circumstance of pure misery or pure enough misery so as to be on balance not worth living. I, I don't happen to believe that's true, but if we knew it was true, Right, or if we knew, I mean, and it's, it's totally possible we could find ourselves in that situation with AI. Right, we could in, mm-hmm. we could invent an AI where we had every reason to believe that it was suffering. I mean, this is again with a theory of consciousness that we find credible. Well, then it would, that would be a bad thing to do. I mean, we don't want to create simulated worlds that are that are hell realms and then populate them with artificial souls. Right, that would be awful. But so if if we recognize that there's some species on Earth 
for whom that's actually already true, that yeah, there is an argument there. But the reason why we recoil from it is because of the absolute hubris of currently believing that we have anything like those facts in hand and of of our intuition, it's, you know, I think totally justifiable, that meddling with the earth in such a way as to wipe out whole species is something that we should, by default, we should be highly indisposed to doing. You know, and, and to, the fact we've done it recklessly and inadvertently in the past is, seems a terrible blot on our record as a species. And if we do it in the future on purpose, I mean, I, I happen to think we probably should do it for mosquitoes. If you put me in charge of the world and gave me the CRISPR technology here to engineer the death of a species, I probably would. I mean, barring some argument to the contrary that I haven't yet heard, I probably would kill all the mosquitoes. But I have what I think are good reasons there. At at minimum, I would engineer them in a way that made them far less harmful than we, we know them to be. They still kill hundreds of thousands of us every year and render many, uh, many more millions miserable. Uh, and they don't do any discernible good that I can see, except they're one of the food sources for bats and other, other creatures that, um, <laughs> that for, you know, for obvious reasons are occasionally annoying to us. So yeah, I think, I think we could argue that at least one species should be um, murdered by us uh, in some form. Again, the, the, the rightness of, or wrongness of all of that is still a matter of consequences, whatever they are, yeah, so, so, whether we can figure them out. Well, in this case, it's, it's yeah, wh- whether creatures with negative well-being should exist. And I think that an example would be during graduate school, I hurt my back quite badly. And for mm-hmm. years, I, I basically lived just in pain. I was, I was, it was just a constant background fact in my life that I was in pain. And luckily, o- over years, I've, I've healed a lot. Uh, and so no longer experience this, but I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't even understand that this sort of thing was possible, that you could just sort of live with a background degree of pain. And I am absolutely yeah. sure that unless you had a very, unless you had a very sort of specifically weighted notion of well-being, that if you added up the well-being of me during that time in my conscious experiences, there'd be this huge bucket of just like constant, you know, grade seven background pain that never goes mm-hmm. away. And you know, so, so in a sense, speaking as a rabbit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I worry that might be jumping to conclusions to 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 have William McCaskill have have snuck up on me and murder me in well, graduate but, school. Well, I of don't course, say that to make fun of William McCaskill, I'm just making but, a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of, but of course, but again, you're you're you have a wider set of consequences that you care about and are right to care about. I mean, one is you have all the people who loved you even then when you were a miserable rabbit. Two, you probably weren't just a rabbit. You were capable of all these other, these other states of consciousness that were good and important and worth preserving. And there was some prospect of you getting past all of that suffering, which you have happily. And so, you know, your, your life was still worth living, but there, it's totally possible to, I mean, I'll, I'll bite that particular bullet. It's, it's totally possible to have a human life that is so miserable and, which, and for which there is no reasonable possibility of it improving such that suicide is, is a rational and compassionate act, right? I mean, that's just, yeah. you know, if, if there is actually nothing that can help and you are unendurably miserable, you know, that, and I, you know, one shouldn't be hasty in judging that of oneself or anyone else, but it's in principle something that's possible, I'll grant you. And then, and then in that case, that would be a life not worth living. 
Yeah, I mean, in a, in a sense, um, it was it was all just a metaphor for graduate school. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I understand that part. Yeah. <laughs> a constant pain yeah. of seven. <laughs> so, yeah. it's what most people experience. Yeah. To be totally honest, in graduate yeah, school. Yeah, well, then so. maybe we maybe we should uh, bomb the graduate schools. That would be the <laughs> yeah. compassionate action for, after we get to the rabbits. Uh, but first, the mosquitoes. Yeah. Well, Eric, I, I realize you have to go. We're right up against um, Thanksgiving here, but um, and you know, as I said at the beginning, there's so much more we we could talk about that we 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 really haven't scratched the surface. So um, I would just say uh, thank you for your time up to this point, and um, I think we made a nice tour of uh, some of the problems and sorted uh, probably nothing out, but um, it was worth doing. I enjoyed it, and well, well I explored, hope it's the first though. of many. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And if people want to. Um want to kind of follow or, or find me online, they can find, they can just type in the intrinsic perspective on Google or go to ericcoel.substack.com and that will bring them to the intrinsic perspective. So sorry, just a brief yeah. plug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, recommend, I recommend it. We'll send a link to, um, to that in our, the email associated with this. So thanks again, Eric, to be continued. Wonderful, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. To be continued. It's been, it's been a huge pleasure. My well-being has increased. Yeah, nice.